0: And there's much more accountability in in the therapeutic world than there is in coaching.
1: Which, Which brings me to the thing that I mentioned in my email to you about my lack of supervision. Yes. I had not realized that it was as much as anything for my own good. Hello, you're listening to An Adequate Podcast by me, John Paul Flintoff. It's about creative self-expression through writing drawing and speaking and it's adequate because i can't do perfect jenny rogers stumbled into it years ago she didn't even know it had a name not till she found a handful of others were doing it too it's not therapy it's not being a priest but it's got something in common with them both it's coaching i discovered coaching after many years as a journalist and i saw many similarities I found it helpful to have a coach myself, and so helpful, I decided to train to coach other people. But when I hit a bad time, the coaching became too much. I gave it up, and I've only started again fairly recently. Jenny, who you hear in this episode, is one of the greatest exponents of coaching in the UK, with a remarkable list of clients and a number of books on the subject, including a very exciting new one that's coming out soon. In this conversation, Jenny shares insights on what coaching is, what it isn't, and what it can achieve. We start by talking about the difference between coaching and therapy, and how I might have helped myself as a coach if I had taken seriously the opportunity to get myself supervision.
0: Well, I think therapists can, can get very indignant about coaching, and I really understand that, because... I mean, you can call yourself a counselor, for instance, having done one term of evening classes, but you can't call yourself a therapist without doing hundreds of hours of training, hundreds of hours of supervision. Yeah. And I think therapists look at coaches who might go through a five day course and then say, oh, good, I'm fully qualified now. Mm. <laughs> and think, what? How dare they? Yeah. And you know, there's much more accountability in, in the therapeutic world than there is in coaching.
1: Which, which brings me to the thing that I mentioned in my email to you about my lack of supervision. Yes. I had not realised that it was as much as anything for my own good. And I think I took on too much as a coach, and I didn't know where to put it. And I was listening to all of this difficulty from other people. And I I had this thought that supervision was to make sure that I was using the the, the techniques and the tools properly. Yes. I thought arrogantly that I I pretty much got it sussed, and um, that was yeah. a mistake. How did that um, How did that play out for you early in your career? That idea that you're now this thing called a coach. When how did you become a coach, and how did you? start calling yourself a coach and how did you <laughs> understand about things like supervision
0: well I'd, I, I'd never I'd never heard the word supervision used for coaching in my early years so looking back I would think it probably very similarly to to what you've described it just never occurred to me it would be it would be helpful um, how I became a coach I suppose I've always been interested in in development. I've had that kind of development itch, really. I look back, even as a teenager, I was probably doing a clumsy version of coaching with my friends, probably far too much reassurance. Oh, you don't need to worry about your spots. No, what, your maths homework is difficult. Well, it's all right, you know, that that kind of thing. Um, So it really happened, I suppose, I was running the BBC's management development department and, and senior people began approaching me in the kind of, um, uh, you know, I seem to uh, have a bit of a problem. Can I come and talk to you? And it never occurred to me that to call it coaching. I believe we called it one-to-one work or something. And I was the only person in my department doing it, but then gradually other people started doing it. So there was a demand for it. Then I realized no money was changing hands. Just It was just wooden pounds. Um that people were asking for proper sessions, two hour sessions and would be properly scheduled. And then it would, we'd probably have five or six sessions. Then I went to a, there was no training, of course. Um, I went to a course to learn how to use a particular psychometric and we were all introducing ourselves. And the guy next to me said, well, I'm X, and I'm an executive coach. And I remember looking at him and thinking Oh right, that's what I do. <laughs> I literally hadn't heard the word used or that phrase, executive coach, and I didn't know he was the first person I ever met who was who was doing it. I mean, there were, of course, probably dozens, hundreds of us pioneers pioneering away at the same time. There was no proper coaching association, definitely no training. Um, but supervision, yes, it probably was another five or six years before I realised that would be useful.
1: And you remember when you started calling yourself a coach?
0: Oh, well, probably from that moment on, but right. the moment I've just described. I thought, that 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 is the right word. And, of course, it, because the word is used in so many different ways, you had to do, a, still do, actually, to some extent. But... Um, you had to do a lot of explaining of what it was and what it mm. wasn't. Mm. So it goes back to that alleged difference with therapy. Oh, it's not therapy, it's not mentoring, it's not training. It was what, We were preoccupied with what it wasn't. Yes. With what it was. Um, so yes, and then there was a, a book came out um, from some great people called the Coaches Training Institute in California. Mm. Uh, called Coactive Coaching, and I, that was the first coaching book I read. Well, I've got that. They're the ones yeah. i trained with. Yeah, Yeah. well, they were, they were absolute trailblazers, and, and they came out of the Est movement, uh, the human potential movement in California yeah. in the 70s, of course. Um, and that was the first time I'd seen it codified, like, oh, okay, that's what I'm doing.
1: Mm. I'm curious because I found it quite embarrassing as a, to use that word. And, you,
0: yeah, what did you find embarrassing?
1: Well, I I I often wonder about this. First first I I find it embarrassing because it needs so much explanation, so it can't be a real thing. Mm. And I think secondly, which is very um yeah, we're all, we're all, we all we'll we'll bring our own baggage to it, but I I think I felt a bit embarrassed that I wasn't calling myself a journalist in every, every context where I worked. Um, and I think I was also rather daunted by the fact that when I told someone who I really admired that I was doing this, he said, how can you do that? This is just being a good neighbour. You're just talking to someone and being like helpful. Like, what? And that, I felt, oh, no, that's terrible.
0: Yes. Well, <laughs> I think it comes down to that confusion about the way the word coach still is used where people think football coach, sports coach, is mm. I tell you what to do. Yes. So when my dear old dad was still alive uh, in, in his working life, he'd worked for the what was then the National Coal Board in, in a kind of humble admin role. And I, I would try to explain to him what I was doing. And he'd say, well, um, how, how can you, somebody you know, somebody like you help, for instance, the the manager of a mine. You don't know anything about mining. Mm. <laughs> well, no, I don't need to. Because the manager of the mine will have the same problems that the manager of a the chief executive of a FTSE 100 company will have. It'll all be about managing time, managing relationships and um, being authentic and how do you lead people without bullying them or... Mm. Uh, being too much of a pussycat. It's the same things. And you go, oh, well, well, well you know, I obviously didn't convince him.
1: It does sound like a magic formula for someone without anything very much, just to turn up and say that they've got lots of stuff.
0: Yeah, well, it isn't really a magic formula. I think you, you have to learn, first of all, how to keep yourself out of the way. Mm. Uh, you have to learn how to how to ask questions. You have to, going back to the point you made just now, you have to learn a number of tools and techniques, if only to discard them later. Yes. Um, You have to learn about why human beings say they want to change and then don't. (laughs) That's the um, million dollar question. Um, And how the relationship itself is actually, this is why I don't really need tools and techniques at all, is the crucible for, for change. So mm-hmm. it's really about creating a place where the person can be undefended, which is so yes. rare because we learn to defend ourselves all the time.
1: Yeah, it really is quite dramatic to be in that space sometimes.
0: Yes. I think it is, and 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 some people get it like straight away, and they pour out stuff um, which they've been holding back for decades. Sometimes, mm. some people take a take a while to say, "Can I really trust this person yeah. with what's really worrying me?" So people will bring their kind of alibi issue, which is something that sounds respectable, and it's only really when you talk to them, you realise there's something much more fundamental underneath it. Yeah. It's
1: also somewhat a priestly role, isn't it?
0: Yes. Well, it's no surprise, I think, that coaching has appeared at the point where religion has declined. Mm. And maybe in parts of the world where people still have religious faith and there are priests who will listen, maybe... I don't know. I've never thought about this, but maybe coaching doesn't thrive there because there's no need for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But here, yes. I, um, I was, I have a, well, I've just emailed him this morning, funnily enough. He's recovering from a very bad case of COVID. Uh, he did a training course that I ran and he took me aside at one point. So he's a minister of a big church in London and, um, he said you realize that what you're doing is it's just like being a spiritual director isn't it mm. <laughs> I said, "Well, fine if you'd like to see it like that feel free <laughs> yeah it's i suppose it's um
1: one of the things that someone said when i was training was that everyone will be a coach fairly soon you know we'll all learn how to do this and I slightly bridled at that. I'm trying to think, why did I bridle at it? I suppose because I wanted it to be my special thing. Um, but also, I doubt that everyone is up to it at the moment. Mm. What, what do you think?
0: Yeah, well, it would be wonderful if every, everyone could be a coach. And when people go through a coach training course, it's they sometimes realize, well, a, a coaching career is not for me, but, but they will nearly always tell you they have acquired life skills. Mm. And that they've realized how much of the time they are forcing advice on people yeah. without, without knowing it. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's true. I went to a, a client's wedding. This is another way, by the way, that coaches differ from therapists. So we we're relaxed about meeting our clients socially. Mm. client invited me to his wedding. And um he'd you know gaily told everyone I was his coach. So all his sibs knew, his parents knew, his parents' friends knew. And a lot of them told me they, oh yes, well, I've retired and I now I'm 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 working as a coach. So when I said, Well, knowing what the answer would be, or guessing what the answer would be, so where did you do your training? <laughs> School of life, one of them said, giving me this huge brick. And they're not really doing coaching at all. They're, if if anything, they're doing a bit of light mentoring., yeah. they pass on their wisdom. Well, that isn't that isn't what coaching is. No But yeah, I think it would be great if everyone could be a coach conversations would be a lot better.
1: Yeah, it, it's really a really good skill to yeah. learn the listening. That's the most wonderful thing. I just really loved watching that and, and seeing on people's faces during the training mm. this sort of, well, gobsmacked, really, quite honestly. Just sort of, oh, wow, you can do this when you're talking to someone.
0: So are you are you doing coaching work yourself now?
1: I, I had a breakdown in 2018 and I stopped. I was in the middle of doing a, a group coaching thing and I paid... Some of the people just stopped because I couldn't do it. I couldn't see how I could possibly do that while also in psychiatric hospital. Mm. Quite right. Um and uh I didn't start again on one-to-one because I had very little confidence that I had anything to offer. But now I can now I've got to the point where I can see that it's a it's a great strength and it's an additional value. And I've just started with one or two people, but I, I don't want to do a huge amount. Mm. I, I like doing a little bit.
0: Well, you know, Jung had this marvelous phrase about the wounded healer. Mm. You know? Yeah, and, and I think if you if you're posing as invulnerable and well, nothing has ever touched me, and you know, you're putting yourself on some lofty pinnacle of awareness, and so on. I think you look phony to clients,
1: yeah yeah i I totally agree, yeah, and i I think I needed to have a big break before I could do anything like that,
0: yeah, and i think I think one of the things that happens is the clients who who can work with you will find their way to you, yeah,
1: yeah, I think that's that's right i like I like having I've now realized that I just like having the repertoire of Sometimes I can be a journalist and just talk to people like a journalist. Sometimes I can be a friend. Sometimes I can be a coach. And you, you know, of course, being a coach is is hugely giving of energy to the other person. Mm. It's depleting to to me anyway. Uh, it's tiring.
0: Yeah.
1: I try to work out how I explain that to people. I think that's it's just that's it. You know, that's the end of my explanation.
0: Well, yeah, I think we all have to find our own explanation because it will probably differ from one coach to another. Um, I mean, when when people are doing that, it's this awful phrase, chemistry conversation, where yeah. people are, particularly in the civil service, are instructed to talk to, in effect, audition two or three coaches before graciously choosing one. Um they, they 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 often completely legitimately ask, "How do you work?" Yeah, and it's a very very difficult question to answer. Mm. Um, and I think what I tr- what I try to say is is that I do I do look for people who are prepared to be open and vulnerable and bring me their. There are real problems, um, and I do work with the whole person, so I say to people, if all you're looking for is it's an awful phrase performance coaching mm. business coaching yeah then that i I am not the right coach for you, no. so my approach is to look all around your life because what's going on in your personal life will affect what's going on in your professional life and vice versa yeah um and if people don't want that well then they're, they're better off with somebody else
1: yeah that's great because it's it's a a real um boundary setting right at the front and mm. it's like, this is what i will do i just that's great
0: love that yeah well and also you can't say where it'll where it'll go i think it, it often so people will state their goals. By the way, that is another difference between coaching and therapy, that coaching is much more goal-oriented than the therapy is. Yes. Um, but people will state their initial goals and they're shape-shifters, you know, you, you, they will change hugely once you get into it. Mm. And the, the real issues will emerge. And often the really profound things like, you know, what's my life direction? What's my life purpose? Where am I going? Yeah do I really want to carry on working like this for this organization in this way? So just asking the question suggests the answer is no.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you
0: know, What are, What are the implications and what else do I do? And these are you know, very big questions.
1: Enormous privilege to hear that, because I, I'm again listening to this and thinking about the journalism conversations where um, it, I was often the one who was sent to do the sort of bedside interviews. I suppose I have a good bedside manner. Mm. And there are some really horrible, traumatic things I had to write about and ask about, and there is none of that transparency. I mean, I'm, I'm not against journalism. I think journalism is wonderful, and I think there's room for those things too, those bedside things. But you cannot go into someone and say, what am, I after? what am I after from this conversation? Well, I'm after you, bursting into tears, tell me something really sensational and um then I'll go off and write it up and you may not like it that way but that's how I'm going to write the story this is totally misaligned interests
0: yeah it is um it was often said about Desmond Wilcox uh, Esther Ranson's late husband mm. when he was he was producing a then famous series called Man Alive that his favorite phrase was zoom in on the tears yeah and no, that's really, it's not what it's, really not what it's about. I think people, people do cry, they qu- cry quite often, actually, and unexpectedly, sometimes. Yeah. So, um, an extremely bland question may produce a cascade of tears, so you could never know, really. No. But your job isn't to enjoy it, <laughs> or to... Yeah. Um, or to say they're there and hand them a tissue like don't cry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Put yourself together, no. It's about well, yeah. what 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 triggered that and what was what was that about?
1: And um, you have a, a genuinely shared interest in the answer.
0: Yes, that's right, because you don't know what the answer you have know what the answer will be.
1: And you both know that it will be helpful and useful to find out.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's right. Because the person, the crime person, isn't asking you to make it better.
1: No. Jenny, we, we have come to half an hour, and I said I wouldn't make it too long, so that we can okay. definitely do that. But I'd really love to talk more about this and other things.
0: Yeah, well, we can carry on if you want to. Up to you. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, let's let's do that. I, I if if you, how should we just set a limit though. Coaching styles, so that we know where we're going. Should we say yeah. 15, okay. fifteen minutes from now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah fine. Um, can you tell me a bit about the things that are hardest as a coach? Um,
0: things that are hardest. Well, I th- I think the only thing really that's hard is working with a client who doesn't want to be there. So in executive coaching, what can happen is that somebody else, their boss or their HR person thinks coaching would be good for this person. And the person can then either pretend that they agree or overtly protest that they don't really want to do it.
1: What have you done about that?
0: Well, um, in that initial conversation before agreeing to take them on as a client, knowing it's been suggested by somebody else, I will really probe and say, X thinks this would be good uh, and beneficial for you. They've made the time and the budget available, but how up for it are you? And sometimes they will say they will say "Yes, they are," but then when you ask them what's their perception of what the problems are, what they will give you is is a a load of external problems, so it's about what's going on in the organization it's about the pesky behavior of other people yeah um My my great hero, Irvin Yalom. Do you do you know him? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, he has a he has a wonderful response to that. I think it's in his book, The Gift of Therapy, where he says, "All right, let's accept that ninety nine percent of this is other people. What's the one percent that's your responsibility?" Great. So I think if people are stuck in that victim place. and they're, what they're looking for is a place where they can complain to you about how awful other people are without being willing to accept that they are part of the problem. You, you can't work with them and I don't. No. Um, but I think that's, that's probably in terms of what's hard. Well, um, I suppose the other, the other thing is, is when you get past the politeness and caution of the first session. Yeah. Um, what people then tell you can feel overwhelming. Now, this is going back to your point about supervision, where yes. yeah. it's essential to have somebody that you can talk to afterwards. But can I you don't explain? Know can I explain you can Sorry, go. Ahead. So I was wondering if you could explain why, for
1: anyone who's listening who doesn't know what it's like to have heard whatever it is that you have in mind when you're talking about that, and I, I have in mind. Times when I was with a client who just was in tears for a long time for session after session it's really a heavy burden Mm. but I also explicitly said and meant it's fine it's kind it is fine Mm. but it's also I'm carrying that person and their situation in my head for the next few weeks what's your can you describe your version of whatever that is why one needs to go to supervision
0: well yeah well, I don't know whether this is exactly what you mean, but um, what can happen is, is, is something, the technical term is parallel processing. Are you familiar with that?
1: I, Where, I am, but I'd rather hear you describe so,
0: it. Well, it, it's, 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 it's actually very simple. So anxiety and distress is catching because we are social animals. Yes. So a client starts crying or telling you about something extremely upsetting. So thinking here of a, a a client who did describe how her grandfather had sexually abused her. Mm. He, was, he was asked by her parents to tutor her in maths to get her ready for some exam. She was very young. She was about eight. And that abuse went on for something like four years.
1: Right.
0: Now, that is horrible to hear. And she actually didn't cry while she was telling me this. In fact, she was was spookily chilly doing it, quite dissociative while mm. she was telling me. But I immediately felt the pressure, the shame, the fear that she was telling me that she tried to tell her mother and she wasn't believed, so mm. father's father. Um, a very traditional culture where uh, older people are revered, You know, this was impossible. So I felt that mix of hurt, indignation. um, I I could easily have cried while while she was telling me this. Yeah. But I think so. That's that's what's happening. And so the parallel process is: she's feeling helpless while she's telling you this. You, as the coach, are also feeling helpless because this feels so intractable. Right, gosh, I've never heard it
1: described that way and that makes a lot of sense.
0: Um, yeah, so the the danger is of rushing in to go there, there, or to rescue and to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm sure, or, or to start inquiring into the facts like, was he ever, did your parents ever believe him? Was he ever prosecuted? You know, all of which are completely probably not what the client needs. The client just needs acceptance. Mm. So I think you have to be doing three things at once. You have to be listening to the client. You have to be aware of what kinds of questions you're asking and and how you're behaving with them. And then you have to be doing kind of third eye listening where you're observing all this happening. Yeah. And you have to be able to know, okay, this is parallel processing. Coming, uh, intruding here. I'm not going to be helpful if that's what's happening. So just the awareness of that happening is enough to stop it.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. To to know it's not going to be helpful to go there, there, to come out with cliches or to be ignorant or to do any of the things that probably uh, any of her friends would do. Um, It's really looking at, you know, what's the reason this client is telling me this now? What does she need from me?
1: Yeah, this has just put me in mind of, again, I'm afraid, journalism. And there was a time on the Sunday Times when I was sent four times in a row, four stories in a row had to do with people either surviving or not surviving or being relatives of a suicide. Mm. And you don't have a supervision process in journalism. I was so
0: depressed. Yes. And... Um, yes. Well, I, I think to know with my... I have a... We do peer supervision, so um, fortunately she's a a doctor, she's not practicing at the moment. But we each know we can get on the phone straight away. Right. After a session like that, if we need to. Just to say, this is what happened. This is what I did, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Somebody who understands what the professional process is and what the emotional, potentially emotional tone on you is. Because it's not going to be helpful if you are then walking away from that session choked up, carrying all that emotional burden. No. The it's fine, because it skips away feeling great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, burdened. you as a coach can potentially feel burdened with it. I can't say I do now, because I think I've learned to, to manage that. But sure. supervision is essential. And how did you, how does it not then,
1: as it were, pass the burden on to the supervisor?
0: <laughs> well, the, the supervisor has to, has to feel okay about it as well. I think you have to be able to talk about all the parallel processing, the, the, uh, where the boundaries are, So this is why you need a supervisor, somebody who's familiar with all of that stuff. Yeah. It can't just be somebody who, again, does that, oh, well, there, there, don't worry, I'm sure you did a lovely job, (laughs) that's going to be helpful. Um, Somebody who knows what it's like and who isn't going to be affected by it. So, But yes, you could potentially have a, a, a... an ever lengthening mirror of supervision <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. supervisor also has a supervisor do
1: you <laughs> take do you take the joyful things to your supervisor as well
0: yes 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 um and i do when i'm supervising other people i i i often get joyful emails from people I supervise say, guess what? We talked about that client. It went fantastically well. This is what she said. And oh, brilliant. Yes, wonderful to hear, yeah. When you work with people as a supervisor, as, as I tend to do over several years, you see their development as a coach. Yeah. And the, the, the things that they've struggled with in their first year, they're, they're not struggling with now, and, but they're struggling with something different probably. Um, it becomes a different relationship yeah
1: and how do you how did you become peer supervisor how did that work did you previously go to someone else
0: well um i've I've worked with probably uh, seven or eight different people in uh, a supervisory relationship over the years and um the last person I had was it was I was uh, was uh, bef- before Sue was um, Julia Vaughan Smith who I've already mentioned and she did this unconscionable thing she moved to Devon <laughs> right <laughs> and I suppose now Wyatt, we probably think well we could do this perfectly well by zoom but it it felt like we couldn't really do it so well and um, she was winding down some of her work anyway. And so Sue is somebody I initially, I trained actually a long, long time ago. And I felt her practice is different enough from mine but like enough to mine for it to work well. And I asked her if she'd consider doing this peer supervision. So the way it works is that we meet uh, alternately, you know, in each other's homes we have a nice lunch where we do gossip um, and then we do an hour each or more depending on what's happening right where, where we play that role with each other and it, it it does work very well
1: great so so two people not peer as in five or seven or
0: no no you can do it you can do it that way yeah i, I until recently i i did um group supervision for a group of Coaches in the civil service, or more than one group actually, um, were very new to coaching mostly, mm. and it was that was a very economical way for the civil service to run it. So we had up to six people in each group, and everybody would have have the floor for fifteen minutes, have right. a whole morning right, and uh, listen to other people. We'd offer ideas, suggestions, and discussions. So that was that was very useful. It's it's a different process, and people are. May not always say what's really on their minds if they're working with close colleagues.
1: Of course, yeah, yeah. We said we would reset at fifteen. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I'm so I have we did all the right. extra fifteen minutes as well. <laughs> okay, all right. Thank you, and I do okay. hope that we might do another another time if it if it feels yeah. like the right thing for yeah. you. But um, not if it's not. Then yeah. I'm also that's fine and no hard feelings. Yeah. Great.
0: How far have you got what you've needed from this?
1: I I wanted it to be an open conversation, so I didn't have a plan. I'd, I've got what I needed. I didn't know that it was this, but it, it turns out that it was. <laughs>
0: okay, good. Thank you. All right, well, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Like, oh, I, I know, one last question. How can you possibly not have watched David Attenborough?
0: <laughs> yeah, you saw my tweet. I don't know. I don't know. It's not that I'm not interested in wildlife, because I am. But it's something about his sonorous voice, and and I don't know. I haven't. That's amazing. (laughs) I really haven't. It's really an achievement. (laughs) I know, yeah, but I've never seen an episode of Love Island either. Well, that doesn't
1: surprise me quite so much. (laughs) (laughs) desktop pilgrimage. It's something that I'm going to be doing every weekday throughout April from 2.30pm UK time to 3.15, so 45 minutes. A virtual pilgrimage walking along Google Street View from my home to Canterbury and I invite you to join me as many times as you like or never or once or twice, whatever you like. Uh, You can find it on my website and you can also find it on my Facebook page creative adventures with John Paul Flintoff anyway do have a look and you'll get a sense of what we're actually doing we're walking along the virtual path on Google Street View and talking to each other about storytelling and um, belief and all sorts of other lovely things do listen thanks bye thank you for listening to an adequate podcast with me John Paul Flintoff if you want to hear more episodes on this theme of self-expression please subscribe. I'm very keen to make this podcast interactive. Send me a comment or a question and I'll try to build it into an upcoming episode. Bye for now.